So uh, I'm going to get started. Uh, I don't expect to go long today. In fact, maybe a little bit short, so we get out here a bit earlier than usual, and um, we will be picking up where Roman left off last week. So Roman introduced you to the incommunicable attributes of God, uh, those attributes or characteristics of God, uh, his essence that are not shared with us, uh, even though we are created in his image. And those are the attributes such as immutability, unity, omniscience, omnipotence, all of those that he covered last week. Incommunicable, we don't share those. <clears throat> uh, today, uh, we'll see what Scripture reveals about the communicable attributes of God or those attributes that, in fact, are shared with man, at least to some degree. Um, attributes like righteousness, wisdom, love, um, holiness even. So that's what we'll be starting with this week, and we'll finish it up next week. This week we're just going to cover four of those attributes. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for another day, another day to come um, before you in worship with the body of Christ. Pray that all that we do today would glorify and honor you, and open uh, the eyes of our hearts to receive instruction from your word to know you better, that we might love you better, worship you better, and bring you greater glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so just a, a reminder of why we do this, why we study things like the attributes of God. I'm sure you've heard people say something like this, or maybe you've heard something like this. I don't want to study all that doctrine and theology, I just want to love Jesus. Well, that's great, but you can't love somebody if you don't know them, and the more you know someone, the more intimately you know them, the more you know about them, the deeper your love will be for that individual, and this is true of God. The more you know of him, the better you know him, the better you will love him and worship him. So let's get going here this morning. Um, I do need to issue another little bit of a warning regarding dividing God up into uh, little pieces or sections, looking at different characteristics or attributes. The problem with that is that God really can't be divided up into individual parts or attributes. He is all that he is all the time. And uh, he possesses all of those attributes. All of those attributes are in operation all at once. And uh, the dividing up into individual attributes uh, is done so that we can wrap our finite minds around the infinite perfections of all that God is. But God is never one attribute at one time. He is immutable at the same time that he is love, and he is love at the same time that he is holy and righteous. You might say that he is immutable. Let's put it this way. Um, one attribute qualifies or moderates every other attribute, so put it this way. His love is a holy, infinite, 
and immutable love, or God is one, absolute, unchangeable, and infinite in his knowledge and wisdom, his goodness and love, his grace and mercy, his righteousness and holiness. With that said, we will begin to look at those attributes that are shared. Yes, ma'am. What is immutable? Non, not changing, never changing. Right. So I'm assuming that Roman covered that last week, right? Talked about the immutability of God, the fact that he never changes. He is always the same. Okay, so the first attribute we're going to look at this morning is spirituality, the spirituality of God. God is spirit. <clears throat> and to say that God is spirit means that he is not limited in any way to a specific location. Because God is spirit, we should also not think of God as having any size or dimensions, not even infinite size or dimension. The fact that he is spirit also means that he is different from every other thing in his physical creation. And to think of God as anything else in creation would be a misrepresentation of God. It would limit him. It would be to think of him as less than he actually is. To think of God existing in the form of anything else in creation would be to think of God in a false and dishonoring way. And that's the essence of the commandment in Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is jealous to protect his honor, and he wants people to think of him and worship him for all that he is, and to misrepresent him in some physical form is dishonoring. God does not have a physical form. He is spirit. So God does not have a physical body, neither is he made up of anything else in physical creation. He is also not um, pure energy, energy or pure thought, as some people would like to think, because those are created things as well. Uh, Grudem, Wayne Grudem describes God's spirituality like this. <clears throat> he says, we might say that God is pure being or the fullness of, or essence of being. Furthermore, this kind of existence is not less real or less desirable than our own existence. Rather, it is more real and more desirable than the material and immaterial existence of all creation. And before there was any creation, God existed as spirit. His own being is so very real that it was able to cause everything else to come into existence. So when you keep that in mind, we can define God's spirituality this way. God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses and is more excellent than any 
other kind of existence. <clears throat> and some of the passages that support this understanding of God's spirituality and are uh, related to other aspects of his being are, number one, he's eternal, which I believe that was introduced to you last week, and certainly you know that. God is eternal, Psalm 92. Uh, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is also omnipresent, Psalm 139, 7 through 8. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He's also invisible, Colossians 1.15. He is the image, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And though God has, in fact, a form, that form cannot be seen. Philippians 2.6 says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And Deuteronomy 4.12, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. In 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. God is also present in creation in a spiritual manner, Spiritual form, Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And of course, Jesus made it very clear that God is spirit in John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. Now, considering all of this, it would actually seem like God's spirituality is an incommunicable attribute, would be something that we would not share, but the fact is, God has given us spirits. Our spirits are also invisible, and it's in our spirits that we worship Him, which is the passage we just read in John 4.24. And 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And our spirits are united with the Lord's spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirits. Romans 8, 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and our spirits pass into the Lord's presence at our deaths. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Philippians 1.23-24, Paul says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So there is some communication or sharing of a spiritual nature that is something like God's spirituality, although clearly our spirituality is not as fully experienced uh, in all aspects as God's spirituality. And that can be said of all the attributes that we share with God or that are shared with us. God's communicable attributes um, 
possessed by him are infinitely superior to ours. Ours are certainly marred by our finiteness and our fallen natures. The next attribute we want to look at this morning is wisdom. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to achieve those goals. God's wisdom is more than God knowing all things or God's omniscience, which you heard about last week. Um, But it refers to God's decisions about what he will do. And those decisions are always wise decisions, which will bring about the best possible outcomes through the best possible means. And that best possible outcome will always be to glorify himself. And just so you don't think that God is responding or reacting to things that are happening in chronological time, God made all of the decisions uh, that he ordained uh, what would be in eternity past. It's not as if he's uh, changing and, and responding to what's happening as it happens. <clears throat> so God's wisdom is affirmed generally in Scripture. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Job 9, 4, he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And Job 12, 13, with God, our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. God's wisdom is also seen in creation, Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's wisdom is in creation. And we see God's wisdom also in his plan of redemption, particularly in his plan of redemption. Christ is referred to as the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Paul makes a negative comparison um, between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom regarding salvation, <clears throat> how salvation is accomplished in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This simple uh, yet profound plan for redemption can be understood by Young children, children come to saving faith as early as five or six years old, but at the same time, the depth of this divine wisdom in his plan for redemption uh, is beyond what uh, any man could have ever imagined. And Paul states this in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's wisdom is also seen 
and the bringing together as one people, both Jews and Gentiles, through the gospel. It's also related to his plan of uh, redemption. We see that in Ephesians 3, 6 through 10. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. <clears throat> God's wisdom is made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is referring to angels and demons, and that is accomplished through the church, his unified and redeemed people. This is a display of God's wisdom. We also see God's wisdom at work in our individual lives. That's really the point of Romans 8, 28 and 29, where God in his sovereign wisdom causes all things to work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And that good purpose is ultimately to conform us all to the image of Christ. <clears throat> God's wisdom is revealed also in afflicting Paul with a thorn in the flesh in order to keep him humble and dependent upon the grace of God. God's infinite and perfect wisdom should be a source of great comfort to believers, knowing that God has chosen what is best for each of us, no matter how difficult or painful, in order to complete that work of conforming us to the image of Christ, completing the work that he began in us, enabling us to bring him greater glory and preparing us to be in his presence. <clears throat> in his wisdom, he has determined what is best for each of us to accomplish that purpose. God's wisdom is most certainly communicable to us, at least in part. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And that wisdom comes primarily <clears throat> from reading, taking in, and obeying his word. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Deuteronomy 4.6-8 through 8 says, Keep them keep them, that refers to the law, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. <clears throat> God's wisdom is communicated to us in his word. In Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This fear 
of dishonoring God and receiving his hard um, but loving discipline should motivate us to follow his ways and live according to his wise commandments, which again are found in Scripture. The wisdom we receive from God will also serve to keep us humble rather than incline us to pride. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And James 3, 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, <clears throat> do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And at the same time, even though God's wisdom is communicable and we are partakers of divine wisdom, our wisdom will uh, always be partial, and there will be times when uh, our wisdom is limited, times when we will fail to understand what God is doing, fail to have insight into what is being accomplished in the world and in our own individual lives, <clears throat> and when our wisdom that is shared with us by God, when that falls short at those times, we have to trust God. When we don't understand and we trust God and obey his word, even when we do not have insight into why he is doing what he is doing or his purposes. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God is infinitely wise, and we must trust in that infinite and perfectly good wisdom when we are not able to understand the why. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we trust and we obey when we are not given the wisdom to understand what God is doing. Well, that's wisdom. Now, next communicable attribute is truthfulness, and related to that is faithfulness. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God, and all his knowledge and words are true, and they are the final standard of truth. We kind of touched on that with the doctrine of Scripture a couple of weeks ago. One true or real God, he is, and all other supposed gods are mere idols or the creation of man's fallen imagination, or they're simply demonic. <clears throat> Jeremiah 10, 10 through 11 says, <clears throat> But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only 
true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. <clears throat> so what does it mean to be the one true God as opposed to idols or false gods? <clears throat> it means that God in his own being and character is the one who fully <clears throat> conforms to the idea of what God should be and what is revealed in Scripture as the one who is infinitely perfect in power, wisdom, goodness, sovereign over time and all creation, unchanging, eternal, gracious, merciful, loving, just, and so on and so on. God has determined what the true God should be, and he perfectly conforms to that idea or requirement of being. Now, sounds like circular reasoning, but that is what has been revealed in Scripture. God is the true God, and all of God's knowledge is true and the final standard for truth. We did touch on that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus affirms <clears throat> that he, God the Son, is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. God's knowledge of all things is also perfect. Job 37, 16, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? God is a God of truth, and he is the source of all truth, because God being the truth, perfect in knowledge, and perfectly holy and righteous, and we'll get to that next week, he is incapable of communicating untruth. God doesn't lie or ever misrepresent reality. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? <clears throat> 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So because God is truth, he is perfect in knowledge, he is incapable of untruth, all his words are true. All of his words are true. 2 Samuel 7, 28 says, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Psalm 111:7 says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. <clears throat> now, because God is true, he's the final standard of truth. All his words are true. Therefore, all of his promises, all of his declarations, all of his covenants are true. It means that he is faithful to keep his promises, and that includes his covenants. God will always do what he has promised to do. He will always fulfill what he has promised. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Deuteronomy 4.31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. In Daniel 9.4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant 
and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. <clears throat> the fact that God only speaks truth and keeps all his promises means that he can always be relied on. He can always be trusted to do what he has said, whether that is fulfilling all the conditions of all of the covenants made with Israel or the promises that are made to each of his people, particularly to cause all things to work together for our good. God can be trusted. <clears throat> Even if we don't understand what's going on, we trust God. Now, the truthfulness of God is certainly incommunicable, I'm sorry, is communicable, just like his wisdom, in that we, <clears throat> too, can seek to acquire true knowledge of God and the world we live in, his creation. And as we increasingly think true thoughts about God and the world, which we learn from Scripture, and as we increasingly interpret <clears throat> all truth claims through the lens of Scripture, as we do that, we begin to think like God. God's thoughts become our thoughts. Growth in the true knowledge of God and true knowledge of the world is part of how we become increasingly like God, more fully conformed to the image of Christ. <clears throat> Paul describes this in Colossians 3.10, and have put on, and referring to believers, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God's truthfulness is also communicable in that we can and are to be truthful in all our words and actions just like our Lord, and we know that. We should love and practice uh, truth. We should hate lies as God does. The commandment in Exodus 20.16 makes that clear. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It is a call to truthfulness as the Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's character. <clears throat> and truthfulness is a reflection of the God who is truth. Colossians 3.9-10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Referred to that earlier. That speaks to the fact that we are new creatures, born again with new natures, <clears throat> growing into Christ's likeness, which should increasingly be characterized by truthfulness. And there's a few more passages that should motivate us to pursue truthfulness. And, and many of these passages um, have a negative connotation. Um, because they speak of God's hatred for lying. Psalm 15, 1 through 3. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. <clears throat> Zechariah eight seventeen. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And finally, Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Because we've been created in God's image and have been redeemed for the purpose of reflecting his glory, when we lie, we not only dishonor God, but we, ref- we fail to reflect his glory, which is our purpose. So don't lie. Be truthful as God is truthful. Display that communicable attribute. And the last attribute we'll consider uh, this morning is the goodness of God. I'm going to start by giving you a couple of definitions of God's goodness. John MacArthur defines it this way. God's goodness is that he is the perfect sum, source, and standard for himself and his creatures of that which is wholesome, conducive to well-being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. Grudem, Wayne Grudem, states it a little bit more simply, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So, who determines what is worthy of approval? Who determines what is wholesome, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful? Certainly not us, because of the corruption in our hearts and our minds that's due to sin. Uh, even though it's a bit circular reasoning, <clears throat> reasoning, um, it is God, since he is the final standard of what is good. If God approves it, it is good. Likewise, if we evaluate things from God's perspective and by his standards revealed in his word, we will approve what he approves and reject what he rejects as less than good. Now, God is a standard of good because he is good. That is clear in Scripture. David often refers to this or states this in the Psalms. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, 1. Praise the Lord or give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And Jesus says that God is good, Luke 18, 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Not only is God the only one that is perfectly good, but everything that he does is good. Everything that God does is good. And that's, first of all, evident in his creative work, Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The psalmist also asserts the goodness of what God does frequently. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Many of the psalms speak about God's goodness and the goodness of his actions towards his people, Psalm 106 and 107 are examples of that. They begin by praising God's goodness, and then they elaborate on how God has been good to Israel. Psalm 106, 1, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And throughout Scripture, just like the beginning of Psalm 106 that we just read, people are called on to praise 
God for his goodness. <clears throat> that should be our response. First Chronicles 16.36, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jeremiah 36.11, The voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. Scripture also reveals that God is the source of all that is good. He doesn't just do good, but he is the source of all good. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Acts 14, 7, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And James 1, 17 makes it very clear, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's also evident in Scripture that God only does good for his people, even when it doesn't seem like it, such as suffering, which we referred to earlier. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, his people. And it's even true, um, as I've mentioned a couple times now, in suffering. We experience um, suffering frequently, and often that suffering is a God's form of discipline to train us. God is doing good. And if you read through Hebrews chapter 12, that is the whole point of that chapter. And in Hebrews 12, 10, it says, For they disciplined us, referring to our earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Knowing that God is good, knowing that he is good and always does good, to his people, to us, should cause us to give thanks in all circumstances. And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, good or bad, you know, a life that's free of suffering or in the midst of suffering. Always give thanks. God is doing good. Now, this is a communicable attribute. <clears throat> um, we can and should be seeking to do good. We should be striving to do what God approves. We should be striving to be like God in doing good. <clears throat> Multiple passages make that clear. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, <clears throat> let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Luke 6, 20, 33 through 35, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 
but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When we do good to our enemies, when we do good to those who do evil to us, we are like God. And finally, since God is the highest and true source of all that is good, God is ultimately the good that we are all seeking, and we are all seeking good. We will only find it in Him, and only in Him will we ever be truly satisfied. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And like David, that should be our desire as well. So that's it for those four attributes. Next week, we'll uh, look at God's love, mercy, grace, patience, His holiness, righteousness, and wrath. Any questions today? Okay, you're dismissed.